0: So we are back. This is week two of looking at a, uh, a guy named Ignatius, Ignatius of Antioch. Specifically, Antioch, again, just for a little bit of like reference, is mentioned in the book of Acts. You'll find it throughout the New Testament. Um, Antioch was one of those major Christian centers in, in very, very early Christianity. And in fact, it's out of the city of Antioch where the term Christian got coined. It was a slam by non-Christians on Christians, a way of going, ah, look at all these little Christs running around, because that's all Christian means. Um, and they wore that as a badge of honor. And so what we're reading is a letter written by a church leader named Ignatius. We're talking like 106, 107 AD on this. So way and early. I mean, frame this for a minute. Book of Revelation, what arguably written 92, 93, 94, maybe 96 AD, we're talking within a 10 to 15 year window of the New Testament being written and you're seeing a a Christian document around that time. And this, this church leader named Ignatius was apprehended by the Roman government. We're not exactly sure why, but the pattern probably fits because he was a Christian leader. And what they were doing, it was leading him from Antioch all the way to Rome. And so if you think about having to make a journey from that like, you know, the, the crutch of Turkey right there all the way to Rome, and you're not doing that, you know, at 600 miles an hour on a jet, that's going to take some time. And so he talks about these in his other letters, the leopards, which are basically the Roman guards, 10 of them, who are escorting him to Rome to stand trial, where, spoiler alert, he is finally martyred, probably in the Colosseum. And on the journey there, they have to stop, you need to rest, you need to resupply, you need to eat, right? And so, as Ignatius is traveling under guard from city to city, he writes these letters. And he writes these letters to these nascent Christian churches, these, you know, pockets of Christians that are existing throughout the region that much of the biblical writers had visited and written to as well, and he's just writing to encourage them. Let's give him advice, kind of the, the hang in there kind of thing. You're going to see a lot in this letter, the spirit of do not think that martyrdom is failure. Do not think that my arrest is something that is um, to be mourned, to weep over, or that, 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 that proves the weakness or, or, or inadequacy of Christianity. In fact, he'll spin it opposite. He'll say, God counted me worthy of this. And I want to pause there for a minute because that is not the way that I think of suffering. How about you? You know, like, like when, when you're in a time, pick your suffering. Do you ever pause and just go, this is awesome. God has counted me worthy of bearing this cross. That's horrible. What I'm praying is, Lord, take it away. Lord, make it easier. Lord, save, in whatever sense of the term that might be. But he learned the discipline of having to think through suffering differently. And there's something very significant in that in the New Testament where suffering is taken from something that is debased. Suffering is taking, taken from something that's, that's failure and it's elevated because if Jesus suffered and in his suffering that's where his glory is most clearly seen, if I'm a little Jesus, how much more for me, Right? I don't know what I think about that. Um, But those are the facts of the case, if you will. I am not gonna stand here today and say I like that one bit. But I have found that there is something very hope-filled and power-filled and that kind of attitude, particularly when you find yourself in suffering that is outside of your control. And I think there's a spiritual discipline to that. Needless to say, Ignatius wrote seven letters. Ignatius, probably a disciple of the apostle John. Think about John in Turkey, writing seven letters in the book of Revelation, right, to seven churches, if you will, or writing Revelation in seven letters within it. There's something very parallel. Um, Disciple-like master that Ignatius is doing here. And I don't know if that's just like random and coincidental, or if Ignatius was actually modeling himself after John that way. I got no clue, but I find it interesting nonetheless. And this is the one written to the Smyrnans. Smyrnaeans, maybe, is an easier easier way of saying it. Um, very briefly I shared this last week. My wife Tina and I, we had the um, opportunity several years ago to go to Smyrna. Today, it is um, called Izmir in Turkey, and it's right there on the western coast, right? It's, it's like a resort town on the Med right there. And it's, it's beautiful. If you ever get a chance to go to Izmir, go to Izmir. I highly, highly recommend. Um, and it's really a launch point if you want to visit places like Ephesus and the ruins of Ephesus and things of that nature. Needless to say, this is the letter that he wrote to them. So I'm going to tell you what I'm hoping to do today with this letter. Again, if you need a copy, um, there are extras floating around here, um, so get your hand up. But last week, we really looked at what I would call highlights that struck you. Today, what I want to do is very similar to what we did with the apostle to Diognetus. That's a mouthful, I know, but that's another one of these things. Um, Let's go through it kind of line by line, or maybe paragraph by paragraph. And it's short enough that we can probably cover some decent ground with this today and maybe just collectively try to draw some some real magic out of what's being written here. Now, before we start in, one more final kind of plug, for lack of a better word. If you dig this kind of stuff, like if you're like one of these, these guys or gals who you're really interested in like, early church history and like, how did these people live and what were the challenges they faced and how did they think and what did they write about and oh my gosh, like what's out there besides the Bible? There are a lot of resources that are very accessible where you can get collections of these. One that I would recommend is called The Apostolic Fathers. And it's a collection of writings. Basically, it includes like the Didache that we've looked at here before. It includes the epistle to Diognetus in its full form that we saw an excerpt of a few weeks ago. All seven of the letters from Antioch, or from Ignatius, rather, and and, and all other kinds of things, too. Some are as short as four, five, six pages. Others get as long as 30 to 35 pages. So think about it like a collection of short stories, if you will, just just a repository. This is really easy to find on Amazon or any number of sources. This is the, um, the Michael Holmes edition, which is the one that I would recommend. There's a guy named Lightfoot who is really responsible for pioneering a lot of these early translations. Um, and if you don't care at all, I totally get that. But if you do go to look it up, it is helpful to have a little traction sometime. But Michael Holmes. Um, H-O-L-M-E-S. Think Sherlock, right? But Michael. Apostolic fathers, and you will uh, you'll find the goods on this. Make sense? Sound good? Fantastic. Let's jump in. Ignatius, who is also called Theophorus. Is Theophorus his nickname? Probably Theophorus means something like um, God-bearer if you will. He's the one that's carrying God. Isn't that a cool way to think about a Christian or a Christian leader? Who are you? I'm one that carries God around, that, 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 that I'll bear God to you, if you will, like bearing the burden of bringing God to you. I'm, I'm the pack horse for God. So Ignatius, who is also called Theophorus, to the church of God the Father and of the beloved Jesus Christ at Smyrna or Izmir in Asia. Asia, of course, don't think the continent. That's what they called Turkey back then. Mercifully endowed with every spiritual gift, filled with faith and love, not lacking in any spiritual gift, most worthy of God, bearing holy things, heartiest greetings in a blameless spirit and the word of God. All right, we got that out of the way, right? By the way, newcomers, you need a sheet? All right, they're right here if you want them. I glorify Jesus Christ. Don't take that lightly. He's under house arrest, and, or, you know, he's in the paddy wagon, if you will. Um, and in arrest, knowing what his end's going to be, I glorify Jesus Christ, the God who made you so wise. And here's where I want you to start keying into some language. For I observed that you are established in an unshakable faith, having been nailed, as it were, to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ in both body and spirit and firmly established in love by the blood of Christ, totally convinced with regard to our Lord that he is truly of the family of David with respect to human descent, son of God with respect to the divine will and power. You're going to find that quoted in Romans 1-4. For example. But I like that phrase. I observe that you are established and unshakable in your faith, having been nailed, as it were, to the cross of Christ. Do you ever think about yourself being nailed to the cross of Christ? I mean, it's just not a way my mind thinks or works that when I see someone, who I respect in the faith, that I think is strong in the faith, that I think is inspirational as a Christian, when I think of someone who's like a God-bearer, if you will, do do you go like, man, that person's like nailed to the cross right there. Like, I I just don't think that way. But those are the very real tangible risks that they faced and the level of sacrifice and suffering that they endured for the name and they're bearing it boom, I am nailed for him. I saw a hand float somewhere. Yeah, Bruce. Do you think it would be blasphemy if somebody were to think about being nailed on the cross in Jesus' place, if he felt that he could take, say, a brother's sin for the same sin that that person took the place of Jesus Christ and nailed his body on the cross, if he could, in fact, remove that demon sin the person that he loved just as much as Jesus loved Yeah, l- let me try to summarize what Bruce said. He said, do you think it would be blasphemous, you know, thinking this way? Do you think it would be blasphemous to think about yourself or to talk about someone as being nailed to the cross, if you will, in Jesus' place for the sake of someone else, if you will? And am I capturing the spirit of that? And I think rightly understood, no, I don't think it's blasphemous at all. And I don't think it's blasphemous because you'll find the New Testament talk this way, not to mention a lot of early church fathers. Now, that shouldn't lead you to believe that in somehow and in some way what Jesus did is insufficient, or that he shouldn't be the foundation and source. But like, here's out of Colossians 1, and this has long since bothered me, where Paul goes, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's affliction. That's Colossians chapter 1. He said there's something lacking in Christ's affliction. And I fill up in my flesh. I suffer like Christ for you, Colossians. He, he, Paul literally, in, in a biblical book, talks that way, though with slightly different language. Um, we, we were chanting about this the other day. Uh, I was reading a commentary by uh, a guy that you should just read and love. His name is N.T. Wright and it's called Deep into the Heart of Romans chapter eight. And basically the entire commentary is about Romans chapter eight. So if you don't know what a commentary is, a commentary is a book that an author writes on a book of the Bible. Have you ever read a book of the Bible and you're just like, there's a lot of confusing things here. and I don't really know where this is going and I wish there was some kind of teacher to help me understand this. Well, that's what a commentary is. You get a really, really smart Bible guy who has spent his life studying an author, a topic, a book in the Bible, and then he writes a book usually 20 times or 40 times the length of that book of the Bible, helping you understand that book of the Bible. Well, N.T. Wright is a commentator. And he wrote a whole commentary, about 300 pages long, just on Romans chapter 8 and it'll 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 blow your mind it's so good it is so good i cannot recommend it enough he's turned something on my head romans chapter 8 i think tends to be one of those books of the bible that if someone has a favorite bible verse it comes out of romans 8 um, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I consider that our present suffering is not worth comparing that the glory, with the glory that will be revealed in us. The Spirit intercedes with us with groans that words cannot express. If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. Well he, will, How will he not give us all things? Um, I am convinced that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that there is neither death nor life, angels nor demons. I'm just scratching the surface here. Alright? It's like, it is just, if you could collect all the good Bible passages in one place, it's probably Romans 8. Right? There's this whole middle section that tends to get eclipsed in the beginning and the end. And N.T. Wright is making the argument that the the middle should really be considered more of the heart and soul of the argument of the passage around which the beginning and the end are bookending. And the middle of the passage is really about suffering. And so contextually, what Paul argues in Romans 8, what he says is, we are heirs of God, so we, we, we are going to receive the inheritance of God. We're heirs of his throne, of his kingdom, of his promises, if you will, and co-heirs with Christ, the firstborn son, if indeed we share in his sufferings, so that we also may share in his glory. For Paul, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, and for Ignatius, sharing in the sufferings of Christ is key. It's central. And then, if you're reading Romans 8, he goes on to talk about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That's when he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, for the creation itself was subjected to frustration, you know, not by its own choice, but by God himself who subjected it and how it's growing, groaning like in, in the pains of childbirth. That creation itself is suffering. Now, when I hear the term creation, let's explore this. When I hear the term creation, my mind goes somewhere, but I want to test it against you. You just kind of use a synonym for creation for me. Like, what do you think of when you hear the word creation? Nature, Eden. Nature in Eden, that's exactly what I think of too. How about you? Beginning. Oh, okay, and maybe even beginning, yeah. But when I think of creation, I don't think of people. I know that people are part of creation, but I think of mountains and like frolicking horses and fields, and that's really kind of embarrassing. Um, but But I see streams and green meadows and mountains and the sun shining, and like there's animals that are like playing or something like that. That's just where my mind goes, probably because I was exposed to too many children's Bibles as a kid. And that's just how I picture Eden, if you will. It's funny that I don't think about people who are God's crown jewel of creation as really central to creation. I think of them as peripheral to creation. If you're like me, dare to change your thinking just a little bit. And when Paul says that creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, just substitute the word creation for people just for a bit. Would you agree that that people, that humanity, is groaning and has been groaning since the fall of Adam and Eve? That people are groaning in pain, internally, externally, right? People bear this this kind of thing. It can be argued, what N.T. Wright argues in Romans 8, is that When Paul starts talking about sharing in the sufferings of Christ, and when Paul later goes on to talk about how the Spirit intercedes for us in our weakness with groans that words cannot express, that it's talking less about our personal groans and more about a vocation. Let me unpack that just a bit. When I read that passage in Romans 8, that the Spirit is interceding for us with groans that words cannot express. I always think about that as about me. It's very personal to me. I'm suffering. I'm hurting. And I just, oh God, you know, one of those, if you will. And when I don't even know what to say, that God is God's Spirit is translating, if you will, and and, and batting for me before the throne of heaven but I see it in very much my need, if you will. He turns the table a little bit, and I'll spare you the whole argument, but let me just get to the gist. He says, no, this is actually the duty of a Christian. Vocation means job, calling. This is your job and calling as a Christian to suffer. And this is why God does not spare us suffering. I'm not saying he never spares us suffering. He never saves us out of suffering. But do you notice that God lets us suffer far more than we think he should? God does not spare us suffering because he wants us working in suffering. And the work he wants us to be doing in suffering is crying out to the throne of God with groans that words cannot express on behalf of those who are suffering like us or that who we Are now suffering with does that make sense think about the people that you are more inclined to pray for aren't they people who have suffered in a way like you suffered or that you're suffering in a way like they're suffering how many of you pray for people with MS on a regular basis with heartfelt groans all right now let me ask about four of you put your hands up I'm curious is it because you know someone intimately and closely with MS? Exactly, right? Because you're now suffering with them, even if you don't have MS. You're suffering with them. And as maybe Jesus would put it, you become the salt and light of bringing prayer, because prayer is really the vocation of every Christian. Us, us, us arguing, pleading, calling out to God... On their behalf. And how much more when you're actually suffering yourself. Oh my gosh, when you're going through it and when you have to suffer, don't you just have a compassion or an understanding, even an awareness, if you will, that wells up? The Christian vocation of suffering, you're seeing it right here at the beginning, of Ignatius. So, I don't know. Fascinating. In Romans 8, maybe read Romans 8 sometime today or this week and keep that lens on and see if if things come into a different kind of clarity, if you will. Um, I I don't want to just kind of like, let's move on, but yeah, let's move on. All right. You're nailed to the cross in body and spirit. Verse 2, middle of the paragraph. Truly nailed in the flesh, Jesus was. For us under Pontius Pilate inherit the Tetrarch. From its fruit we derive our existence, that is, from his divinely blessed suffering, in order that we might raise a banner for the ages through his resurrection for his people. Saints just means holy ones, his people. If you're in Christ, you're a saint. And faithful people, whether among Jews or among Gentiles, in the one body of his church a lot of creedal stuff out there a lot of kind of creedal foundational things that things like the apostles creed the nicene creed came to draw on for he suffered all things jesus for our sakes in order that we might be saved i love that the way that we talk about salvation today you find phrased in 107 ad right he suffered for our sake jesus died for our sake He suffered for our sake that we might be saved. Boom. What is Christianity about? It's that line right there, right? And he truly suffered just as he truly raised himself. Not as certain unbelievers say that he suffered in appearance only. It is they who exist in appearance only. It's kind of like, I I, I don't know. I'm trying to phrase this. You say this to me all the time. Like, like if I say something, you go, well, your mom is a, you know, like one of those lines. That's what I feel like this is doing here. Indeed, their fate will be determined by what they think. They will become disembodied and demonic. So it's like there are certain unbelievers who are saying, Jesus didn't really suffer. He suffered in appearance only. Jesus really didn't die on the cross, it just looked like he died on the cross, We're just led to believe he died on the cross, because how can God demean himself to die on a cross? How could God demean himself to take on human form and flesh? This is what's in the conceptual worldview behind it. I'll spare you all the reasons why in Greek philosophical thinking at the time. Today, people often have a trouble believing that Jesus was divine, and that there was something more than just a mortal man dying, back in Jesus' day, it was very much opposite. There was very much a struggle going, how could this divine man actually be human flesh? And so the big fight back then was, man, it just had to be an appearance only. It just kind of looked like it. Or he was up there, and maybe he was just kind of going through the motions because God doesn't suffer. And the Christian answer is God does suffer. And that brings all kinds of strange things. How can, how can an almighty being suffer? Because doesn't that imply weakness? Well, welcome to the philosophical journeys of Christian theology, but let's not deny the facts because we don't know how to reason it out. Yeah, Mike. Well, I realized that this argument at that time was addressing the fact that it wasn't just appear, you know, a spiritual appearance of, of real suffering It also, it helps address what you said, what you touched on was today's today's theory of, you know, a swoon theory that he didn't really die, didn't really do any of that. And it's just interesting that what we, what a lot of critics today think is, oh, it's just a story based in legend and what everybody wanted to believe. You have somebody 67 years after the facts that's reinforcing the fact Know it's a real thing that really happened under this person's rule, under this person's governorship. And yet, yeah. the idea of it not really happening started then and persists 2,000 years later. Yeah, and the idea, and I just love his like kind of final retort to it. He's like, you don't think it's real? I'll tell you who's not real. You're not real. Right? You're the one that's disembodied. You're the one that's just, yeah. Yeah, you're not real. You're, you're mom. No, anyway. <laughs> Other column, other page, for I know and believe that he was in the flesh even after the resurrection, and when he came to Peter and those with him, he said to them, Take hold of me, handle me, and see that I am not a disembodied demon and that like awesome, because you 're not going to find that line on the lips of Jesus in the New Testament. Um, You will find in John chapter 20 and 21, where Jesus does say to people like Thomas, remember, like poor doubting Thomas, he always gets remembered as a doubter. He's like, until I like see the holes in his hand and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And then Jesus apparates through a wall, right? And then goes, okay, now touch me. Here it is. Put your hand, stop doubting and believe, but look at the way that Ignatius puts it, see that I am not a disembodied demon. Now, something important about ancient texts is to remember that they are far less concerned with exact quotes as we are. They are concerned with getting the gist. And what you see in these early church writers all the time is they'll take the words of Jesus and they'll try to package them in such a way or or translate them. They'll do a message translation of them, if you will. You know the message version of the Bible? They'll do a message-style translation of them to try to communicate to their audience, which brings me to the word demon. Let's do the same mental exercise that we did with creation. When you hear the word demon, what do you think of? Devil, Devil, right? It's a spiritual being that's evil, right? That idea is certainly prevalent in the New Testament. That idea is certainly prevalent in the intertestamental literature, which means all those Jewish writings written between the Italian prophet Malachi and the time of the Gospel Matthew. All right, and that like 400-year block right there. But in Greek thought, not Jewish thought, there was a different connotation for demon that predates this and probably exists. You see Socrates talk this way. Socrates would talk about having a demon, at least on the words of Plato and Aristotle, Um, and other Greek writers of the classical period would talk about having demons, too. They would say, we all have a demon. Let me try to use a different term to get the spirit of it across. Have you ever heard of someone having a muse? Okay? Translate muse for demon oh wait does that mean it's like all evil and fiery no have you ever heard people talk this way today i am inspired or man he was inspired or that song that she wrote was just inspired have you ever thought of what the word inspire means etymologically which means if you break down its component words in spirit right and that's not to say that every time you word, use the word inspire, that that's the, the literal like, definition you go back to. You can't base the, the meaning of a word in any time off its etymological roots. But the word originally meant like in the spirit, meaning why are you so good at that or so talented at that? Why is that person such a phenomenal musician or that person such a great basketball player or this person such an you know, uh, amazing fill-in-the-blank? Well, because a supernatural spirit must be upon them, or they play in such a way that it's almost like that's happening. It's kind of what it means. It was the idea that you kind of had a, a demon, is what they would call it. It's your kind of like guardian angel. It's kind of like your spirit identity. It's kind of like your watch over, if you will. As long as you're thinking about it as a supernatural outside of you, like rest on the shoulder and not per se malevolent. And it developed from there in Jewish and Christian thinking. to go, oh, wait a minute, these spirits you're chasing after. Uh, don't, don't, don't go thinking that they're as benign as you think they are. Um, oh, I, I just lost the book, The Golden Compass. Um, have you ever read that? I don't know if you guys are in like, fantasy novels, and if not, shame on you. Um, but have you ever read The Golden Compass? Um, Philip Pullman, if I'm going back, he's kind of like the the anti-C.S. Lewis. So if C.S. Lewis wrote a fantasy novel that was very Christian-based, The Golden Compass is a very atheistically based fantasy novel, and he intentionally uses that field of reference, and so they'll have demons in the book. And that Greek way. What really makes the novel, though, is the armored polar bears. That, that's the good part. The rest kind of stinks. Um, just looking for frames of reference that are probably not helping but hurting in our discussion today. So fine, let's keep moving. All right. So, Jesus was not just some disembodied spirit being. Not, not implying that he's evil, but to a Greek mind, he might just be like this spirit being. A demon in their way. So Ignatius is taking Jesus' words to go, no, I'm flesh and blood. I'm not a demon. You see what Ignatius is doing? Trying to communicate to his audience, if you will, in their background. All right. Can we beat the dead horse? Let's keep going. And immediately they touched him and believed, being closely united with his flesh and blood. For this reason, they too despise death. Indeed, They proved to be greater than death. And after his resurrection, he ate and drank with them like one who was composed of flesh. Although spiritually, he was united with his father. Jesus was human flesh. And Jesus suffered in human flesh. You are human flesh. And as human flesh, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will suffer too. Embrace your suffering, own it, and don't be ashamed of it. Certainly pray for God to save you from it, alleviate you uh, of it, and to take it away. And look forward with the hope that resurrection will come when, just like death, suffering will be defeated. Right? This is the Christian hope that allows Christians to go to martyrdom Christians to endure anything because this life is not the end of the story, right? Resurrection is always there. And if you keep your eyes focused on the resurrection, you can arguably face anything, endure anything because anything you face is short-lived compared to resurrection, right? So if Jesus suffered, died, died, and rose. How do we, as people in Jesus, who are also human flesh like Jesus, endure our suffering? Endure it not as shame, but with glory? Treat it as a vocation while we're in it on behalf of others? With eyes focused on what's to come? And that's why Ignatius can go to Rome with his head held high, right? Boasting, as Paul would say in his suffering, and in his weakness. Because when he's weak, God is strong. Resurrection, baby. It's coming. It's the whole thrust of this and what he's getting at more and more. Well, I did a horrible job of getting us through any kind of traction here today, but hopefully the digressions on this were interesting, but it's the heart and soul theology that I think is worth the time to discuss. So, um, question for you. We can do one of two things. We can move on to new country next Sunday, or we can continue to do play-by-play commentary through Ignatius. I don't want to just gloss over things if you find it interesting. I also don't want to get caught into quicksand if you're like, oh, please, can we move on? You have to vote. You're not gonna hurt my feelings, all right? Let's just kind of get the consensus of the room. You have to vote, and if you don't raise your hand, you are leading the lesson next week, all right? Who would like to stay with Ignatius of Antioch in Smyrna one more week? Who would like to get out of the quicksand and out of the mud and say, let's move on? Well, I hate to tell you this, guys, but those of you who raised your hand secondly, I think you're outnumbered here today. Um... So if you would suffer along with us and treat it as your vocation of suffering to have to read Ignatius just a little bit longer, please bring your sheets back next week, all right? Um, That would mean so much to me and alleviate me of suffering, and I thank you for it. God bless.